this company was started in Southern California, it, it wouldn't be the same company it is today. Because it's a Pacific Northwest company, mm-hmm. there's a, there was a, a uh, antenna is much higher on environmental issues because of the nature of where you live, you know, forest, rivers, streams, open space. And so from day one, it was about uh, recycling, reusing, don't, old waste use as much of the waste as you could mm-hmm. just because it was just the mindset. Right. And I'm, and I'm telling you, it, uh, being aware of who we are and, and our responsibility to serve the athletes of the world means that we, we are responsible for everything we do. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with Nelson Ferris, Senior Director of Global HR Talent Development at Nike. Nelson has held about 20 different jobs during his Nike career that goes back to the 70s. Nelson is Nike's longest tenured employee and is also known as Nike's chief storyteller. I ran track in junior high school and high school, track and cross country. I played football, basketball, baseball, but I was tall and skinny and I, you know, it was, track was good for me. And um, the, the shoes that were available in the, for my generation were, in the, there weren't a lot, there was a half a dozen brands and uh, the, you know, the, the big brands out of Germany, Adidas and Puma, they made shoes that were more suited for European training, which was done on grass and, mm. and track. And so, so Tiger, Blue Ribbon Sports was bringing Tiger shoes in the United States as their beginning. And, and so I remember well that uh, I lived in Long Beach, California, and I went, needed a pair of these authentic jogging shoes that were made for Americans out there plowing, you know, plowing on or running on uh, cement or blacktop. So I drove from Long Beach to West L.A., where the, their store was, a little tiny store, and got my first pair of Tiger Cortez's, and I got a pair of racing shoes. So I had a, what we call a training flat, which was the mm-hmm. Cortez, and then a racing flat, which was the racing shoe. And I was so excited. <laughs> and it cost, uh, you know, $9.95 or something. <laughs> but uh, it, was the, it was authentic. You trusted the guys because when you went to the store, you were a, runner, a geek runner talking to geek runners. Mm-hmm. So we had a common bond. And also it was a period of time where you know, the whole um, um, evolution of jogging was just taking place in the United States. And we were sort of, sort of odd because you'd be out running with your short shorts on and no, no baggy <laughs> shorts like today. Short shorts on, T-shirt, running shoes. And, and, and you were sort of a freak. You know, yeah, you stood geeky, out. You stood out and, and, and people would throw things at us and go by and make, you know, comments. And it was, it was really a breakthrough time and the beginning of what I perceive today as the modern uh, fitness evolution and revolution. It all started with that, that whole running thing. So that, that me and my first Tigers was a part of a movement that became this monster that it is today. Brand new Nike came to be in 1971. Mm. Uh, Bill Bowerman and Phil Knight. Bill Bowerman was his coach, Phil Knight yes. uh, track at U of O. 
And they were probably trying to solve the same sort of problem that you as a runner were trying to solve, shoes that were comfortable that you could run on a track. Well, that's where it came from. It, right. I mean, the, the, the Tiger Cortez was Bowerman's concept. Yep. And then, and then, uh, and then when uh, we did, they split with Tiger in, in the '71 and in the spring of '72, they launched the brand new brand called Nike. Mm-hmm. And uh, my good friend, who was Ted Banks, who was the track coach at Long Beach State, where I went to school, he had just returned from Eugene, Oregon, from the Olympic trials, and he came back with a pair, and he says, "Look at these!" <laughs> and he holds up a pair of Nikes, and he goes, "We should sell them." <laughs> and I'm going. Yes. So here's two knuckleheads <laughs> with zero <laughs> business experience, and we're excited because it was uh, we were in the moment we were runners or coaches in the world of running and coaching, and we found a company that was like us because I knew them from when they were BRS. So I brought back this shoe, and we opened up our own little shop in Long Beach, California. <laughs> for $1,500 <laughs> and bought our first inventory and it was nothing but Nikes and he was coaching full-time. I was working, had a job and we were doing this part-time and uh, and that's how uh, I got it, you know, really connected to Nike mm-hmm. and started making my, my contacts with people up here and, you know, Oregon was like another planet compared yeah. to Southern California. <laughs> so it was, um, it was just a, you know, just serendipitous beginning. I mean, who would have thought that a couple of geek runners would just bump into the beginning or be a part of the the revolution in fitness and running and then connect to the company that was going to be the company for runners and for sport in general. So that was, that was a humble beginning. Well, you also, again, in this uh, short video that I watched last night, you also told the story of you applying for a job at Nike and your connection to the woman, was it in accounting or was she in? No. Yeah. No, the woman, excuse me, was Merle Waddell. Right. Merle Waddell was Bob Waddell's mother. And Bob Waddell was the office manager for the company. Mm-hmm. And Bob Waddell was a, an a, a athlete who trained with Bill Barman. He was a long jumper. He was very good. He was injured in a float building accident. So he was in a paralyzed from the waist down, which is, you know, very sad. And his mother came to work for the company to support her son. Nice. And she was the warehouse manager. Well, it turns out she was more than the warehouse manager. She was the whip. <laughs> 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 and so when I bought my, my shoes, uh, I went through Merle. Mm-hmm. When I returned shoes, I went through Merle. When I sent a check, I sent it to Merle. When I had a question, I called Merle. So <laughs> she was the only person that I knew in the very beginning. And bless her because um, she kept us straight and helped us solve problems. And I would have ideas and I would send them up to her and she would pass them <laughs> along. And they didn't go anywhere. <laughs> but uh, but Merle, Merle Waddell, uh, bless her heart, was, uh, was my link uh, for five years, for uh, the first year, I'm sorry, the first uh, six months of the years, uh, the six months that I had our business. And then, uh, then after that, a few things happened. I ended up working for the company. Right, and she kind of uh, gave you a good. Uh, she gave you thumbs up for yeah. your application. Yeah, yeah. No. Um. <laughs> you, 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 read, you probably read about. The, the funny part is, is that, is uh, uh, again, how things happen. My business partner um, gets a new job with another school in Texas, Texas El Paso. I hired, hired him away from Long Beach State. So I thought, oh no, my partner's gone. I can't do this by myself. So I pick up the phone. I call Merle. Merle, Nelson here. Hey, 
you guys need anybody down here in California? <laughs> it was that simple. She goes, I don't know. Let me talk to my son. I didn't know who her son. I get a phone call. Hello, Nelson. This is Bob Waddell. That's how I talk. This is Bob Waddell. My mom said I should talk to you. <laughs> oh, that's so, fantastic. They flew me up, interviewed me, and, they, and then it was a you know, pretty small cup. I literally had to interview everybody in the in the office, right. and I had to get thumbs up or down. They thought I was okay, and then that was uh, end of December and in January of 1973, full-time Nike guy. So you've been around for a while. Yeah. You've been. What was the first position you were hired as? Positions. Position. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, small company. There was company. no position. Right. We wore many hats. So, so because I had failed at my retail job, they hired me to manage two of their retail stores. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Perfect sense. I had experience. <laughs> but we would sell. We would we would sell direct. We would do promotions. We would run stores. You know, learn how to manage people. Learn how to deal with banks. I mean, it was a lot of things that were just none of us knew anything. We just didn't. Right. And there was a high level of trust, which is uh, something to not be uh, not be missed here. And uh, Knight's uh, genius was that there's good in everybody, mm. and there's talent in everybody, and uh, you can tell them what to do. You can't tell them how to do it. Mm-hmm. So the what was, you know, we're here to serve athletes with great products. The how you figure it out. And, and, and in polite terms, you know, I asked, what do you what do you want me to do? I said, well, you know, try to sell some shoes when you're down there and, you know, connect to the athletes. And then there was a pause and then it was, and don't screw up. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so the don't screw up becomes, becomes um, a symbol of trust. Because by saying don't screw up, you're saying, I trust you to think it through. I t- trust you to ask questions. I trust you to not bet the company on the decisions you make. I trust you to keep your promises. I mean, there's a whole lot mm-hmm. below that. And you don't, at the time, you don't see it, but you, you start to behave that way because you're afraid of screwing up <laughs> because you don't want to get fires. You know? <laughs> was, so, there a lot of, was there a lot of leeway? Were, were you given, because you weren't given specific instructions, did you feel you had a lot of creative freedom to you try yourself? You had yourself? 100% freedom. Yeah. And you, you know, you're restricted by budget. We didn't have any money, so you had to be very, very creative. Which, by the way, you can do a lot of things with very little money if you really think it through. It's not complicated. It's mm-hmm. more complicated, complicated today, but then it was less. And so, we were able to do whatever we thought was right. I'd come up with some harebrained idea, and I'd call them up and go, "Well, if you can do it, well, no budget, do it." Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and then off you'd go. And we would find people, who, uh, again, it was a very innocent time, who wanted to be a part of this. So we easily got people that would donate stuff or help or, or running clubs would give would, would volunteer to help for free because we had no budget. So people loved what we were doing because we were bringing energy to the sport. We were celebrating the sport. We were celebrating the athletes no matter what. I mean, people don't realize we were doing not just running. We were doing wrestling, mm-hmm. basketball, tennis you know, track and field. So we were in multiple sports and it was all about, you know, how do you, how do you work with athletes and coaches and teams in a way that's, that's honest and it's, uh, it helps and it makes things better because we knew we would sell things and, and we, we, we never felt, I never felt like I was in the shoe business. I felt like I was in the athlete service business. Yeah. It's a mindset. And so we knew if we were good people, <laughs> and we made good product and we treated people well, we would sell, and we did. Do you think being an athlete yourself, particularly in track, helped that yes, aspect? Yes, absolutely, because then, you under, you, again, you, you understand 
what it takes to be an athlete, discipline, yeah. training, injuries, winning, losing, how to right. deal with losing. Uh, and then you're on a team, even though you, as a track athlete, you may have an individual role, but you're on a team with others and you compete as a team. Mm-hmm. That's what Byron's great genius was, his guide, everybody to understand it's not you coming out and being an all-star. You're on a team and you support each other, you have each other's backs. Competing in sports teaches you a lot of life lessons, and most of it is is all of us grew up understanding you don't do anything by yourself. You have to have teams of people to help you do anything. I don't care what it is. And so, and then you learn to be personally responsible, you know, pay attention to your teammates, help them when they need help, and, and expect them to help you when you need help, which might be weekly. You need to be knuckleheaded, <laughs> remind you what you're doing here. That's so true. Sports is sports are to me are one of the great teachers. That's why we're current Nike. We're very passionate about getting kids to play. Yeah, let kids go out and run and play and learn how to do all that stuff. Yeah, that's why I was really happy my boys uh, have participated in sports yeah. because there's so much besides the skill of the sport. Yes, that uh, the skill of the sport is almost secondary to everything else that being on a team can teach you. Yeah. Uh, and, and that goes forward in life because when you're working, you're working as a team. Totally. Yeah. The, the whole, the world is team-based. I mean, because right. we're all social, we're, anim- we're social animals as humans and, and it's our nature to interact. And, mm-hmm. and so sports, it's, and plus sports is so powerful. If you're watching World Cup, yeah, watch people go from dead silence to hysteria in one one-hundredth of a second. <laughs> <laughs> it shows you that what sport can elicit in people, the emotional the emotional swings that can happen because of sport are unlike anything else as, as human beings that we experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the story, of course, behind the waffle iron and yeah. the shoe is legendary. But, of course, I have to ask you, about that, about Bill Bowerman and experimenting with, with the waffle iron. What was that aha moment? I mean, I know it's because it the the it grips the ground better and, and such. But has he he's had to? I'm sure told that story. Yeah, many it's times. A, it's anecdotal because I didn't I wasn't here when it happened, but yeah. I heard the story firsthand. Yeah. And this is what's so interesting. You know, Bowerman by his uniqueness. You know, he was uh, he had the the mindset to be a doctor. He wanted to go to med mm. school. And then he decided that coaching was, that's what he really wanted to do. So he was very smart and incredibly curious. Mm. So he was a tinkerer. So he you know, taught himself to ma- how to make shoes, taught himself how to make artificial track surfaces, taught himself how to make uh, uh, liquid mixtures, which would be like Gatorade later. On. He was literally in the forefront of wow. three or four industries. The athletes would uh, would come up to play football on, on uh, U of O's artificial turf surfaces, and mm. they would take their traditional cleats off and put on uh, tennis shoes or basketball shoes because that surface, that sole of the outsole of a of basketball type shoes would had you had better traction on the material on the surface of mm-hmm. Univo football. Bowerman was was thinking and watching that and from that he was thinking of a, a similar outsole design that could give runners traction on any surface, mm-hmm. gravel, dirt, mud, grass, right. rain, dry. So from watching the footballers get better traction from a different kind of outsole than the luck, he's having you know, breakfast with his wife and he's looking at that <laughs> square pattern right. and he goes ding, ding, ding and goes out and gets some, 
some of that synthetic material he was using to make artificial traction, poured it in, ruined half a dozen <laughs> waffle irons because they would stick, couldn't right. even pull apart. But that's what he, his observation, aha moment, try this, try that, try. Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid to fail. Right. fail. Failing is like losing, what'd you learn from it, you know? And so he made, we made 10 pairs for the Olympic trials in 1972 gave them out to a handful of athletes hoping that somebody would make the Olympic team wearing them. Nobody did, <laughs> but it created such a fear. Whoa, what's this? Right. This is cool. Lightweight. Yep. Cushioning that really worked. A shoe that you could put on and go running. You didn't have to break it in. So there's a number of pieces to it that made it work really good. Well, and it was in uh, 2014 that he was inducted into the National uh, Inventors Hall of Fame for that that particular invention that he had. Yeah, well that, you know, he's a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you talked about, just a few minutes ago, the trying and failing. This has been a theme with a lot of the business folks that I've talked to in this series. You can't be afraid to try. Right. And you have to expect failure because without that, you don't eventually get success. And so the innovation aspect of Nike has been tremendous. And I actually wrote a couple of things down. The fly knit, the Nike, and, and I'm sure I'm just touching on a couple of this, a couple of these, uh, React Fly Ease, the self-lacing shoes, yes. the Nike Pro Hijab, um, have all been innovators yes. uh, in one way or the other. What do you think have been some of the standout innovations? Well, it's by decade. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the from the waffle shoe to the waffle trainer, the waffle trainer was uh, where when we made uh, millions of pairs for the running community around the world, nylon upper, waffle outsole, and then more Bowerman cushioning, under, cushioning underneath the, the, between the upper and the, out, and the outsole. So a highly cushioned training shoe made out of nylon so it could be washed. Mm-hmm. So a high school kid could buy one pair of shoes, train and race in those shoes. Right. So, and it was, uh, it was different. It, we made them in colors, which made it fun. Yeah. But technically, it was uh, it, that was the '70s breakthrough. So you had the Cortez as the entry, and then 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 the, then the waffle nylon upper training shoe became a waffle racer racing shoe, and then from that a whole iteration of waffle material or waffle items later on. And then in basketball, we went in and we came out with a shoe called the Franchise, which was a, a different style and fit of a basketball shoe in the early '80s, and that was transforming. Lightweight, I mean, taking the heavier, clunkier basketball shoes, making them lighter weight, better fitting, better to lace, just all kinds of things. So breaking forward there. And then uh, the ongoing uh, work with running. I mean, there was, uh, there's so many shoes, I can't even remember, remember <laughs> them now. But, but, but the, um, there was one called the Terra TC, was a lightweight racing thing, and it was made, the outsole material is what they call blown rubber which means there was gas injected into this material, made it very light, mm-hmm. very cushy. And you had the feeling you were running on like uh, needles in an airport, in, mm. in a forest, you know, soft, kind of giving cush. So that was a kind of a, that beginning of this new foam materials are starting to show up. Uh, Mattel was making the uh, dolls and the dolls had some kind of, soft, cushy material. We went and checked in with Mattel and found this stuff and then reworked it and found that it would work with running shoes. So that was a shoe that showed up later on around this same time in the, in the early 80s. And 
So we were always looking out. There was new designs, new materials, new threads, new machines, new manufacturing. Everything was constantly in a state of evolution. And, uh, and we were just keeping up, mm-hmm. just keeping up. So a, a runner of the 70s grows up, has kids. His kids grow up with what they have, so they're looking for something different and unique. In five years, a five-year-old kid is now 10, and the 10 is 15, and right. so on. So you're, And the interests are different, and the, and the exposure to the world is different. So we're responding to their needs. We're figuring out how to make new stuff. And we just kept it going, and it's just been constant. And then the first uh, visible air, the Air Max, uh, in 1985, 86, was uh, we were putting airbag, we were putting airbags in the shoes. The, right. the first one was was the uh, the, the uh, Tailwind, the Tailwind, 1979. The Tailwind was the first shoe in the world where we put a an airbag mm-hmm. uh, inside of a shoe all the way from heel to toe, and so you had this like pillow-like feel. Mm. To this shoe, and it was light because it was an airbag. It had a like, kind of a gas in it that that wouldn't leak, so you could pound on it. And the the, the material that kept the airbag whole was uh, um, the molecular structure was that gas couldn't leak out, mm-hmm. so the bag wouldn't go flat. Right. And then so we had a, a non-leaking airbag, super cushioning, and that was the beginning of the whole air cushioning system. And then from that, we made the next one visible by we decided we needed more cushioning in the shoe. In order to get more cushioning, you'd have to move the airbag closer to the outside. And the only way to do that is you had to open up the sides of the shoes to allow the airbag to expand. So we got 50% more cushioning, and lo and behold, we had the first Air Max where you could actually see the bag. And that turned out to be a blessing because consumers, customers, customers, I love the better word, could see the technology. Mm-hmm. It's like if you buy a Porsche and you open up the hood and you look, aha, <laughs> you see the engine, you know. This isn't a Porsche. But <laughs> but the idea that uh, uh, it was the beginning where design and uh, science could be displayed to a customer in a way they could understand the technology. Aha, right. now I get it. Right. So huge breakthrough. And now, you know, air is a monster part of our business. We make millions of pair of of air in multiple different ways. You know, we made high heel shoes with air cushioning system. We, when we used to own coal on, oh, right. and we had put air. So we've learned to use it. There's called tinsel air and, and zoom air and these very specific little bags that are made that go either go into the ball of the foot or the heel or the whole length or whatever. So track spikes with airbags or walking shoes with airbags or running shoes and so on. So all that came from that who would have thought you could put encapsulate air and put it in a shoe. By the way, it was not easy to make. I would imagine. It took us 18 months to figure out how to do that because we had to build new machines to make the shoe because existing uh, manufacturing could not accommodate (laughs) the idea, could not build around the new idea. You're listening to Kink's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Nelson Ferris in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor, The Portland 50 Series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Nelson Ferris, Senior Director of Global HR Talent Development at Nike. Nelson has held about 20 different jobs during his Nike career that goes back to the 70s. Nelson is Nike's longest tenured employee and is also known as Nike's chief storyteller. 
speaking of innovation with that one, is that the same shoe that had the gas FS6? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, this is where, this is one thing I noticed, and, and we can talk more about it later, but this is one thing I noticed, and I even wrote this down. Solving sustainability problems have benefits. So the FS6 gas was uh, changed to nitrogen. Yes. FS6 greenhouse gas. Yes. No longer used yes. for the nitrogen. So um, one thing I've noticed about Nike is as the company strives to be more sustainable, they're solving problems as well. Yes. Uh, as far as lighter shoes and, and you know, not sending as much to the landfill and, and that sort of thing. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's that was... The, the one thing that's different. Well, one it's interesting, you know, I, I'm from Southern Cal, and and this is a funny conversation we've had, not a funny, but an interesting one. If this company was started in Southern California, it, it wouldn't be the same company that it is today. Because it's a Pacific Northwest company, mm-hmm. There's a there was a, a uh, antenna is much higher on environmental issues because of the nature of where we live, you know, forest, rivers, streams, open space. And so from day one, it was about uh, recycling, reusing, don't, old waste, use as much of the waste as you could Mm -hmm. just because it was just the mindset. Right. And I'm, and I'm telling you it, uh, being aware of who we are and, and our responsibility to serve the athletes of the world means that we, we are responsible for everything we do. Mm Mm-hmm. And therefore, we got to do the right thing. Yeah. And it, it, it made us always think about recycling it from day one. You know, I moved to the other charge of nickel. Who, what? <laughs> you recycle a bottle. And uh, <laughs> I moved up here with the, in the Volkswagen van with California license plates. And I had to change those plates in about the first five <laughs> days that I was here. <laughs> it's funny. But that sense of purpose, you know, we're here to serve athletes and we're, we're also responsible citizens of the world and, and we, we're getting better and better and better at it to the point now where we're close to having a 100% recyclable product. Right. Well, let's talk about sustainability yeah. then since we're on it because there were a couple of things that I noted. Of course, the Nike grind. Uh, that was 1993 where it mm-hmm. closes the life cycle mm-hmm. um, of the product. The rubber goes to soccer, football, baseball fields and running tracks the foam, everything is ground out and separated. The foam uh, goes to synthetic basketball courts and playground surfaces, yep. and the fabric goes to padding under basketball courts. Now that, I mean, that's a couple of decades old, and it seems like everybody knows about you know recycling these athletic shoes. Plastic bottles diverted and converted into recycled polyester for yes. performance products, like what you're wearing. Yeah. Uh, the fly knit, um, I, I mentioned that a little earlier. Yeah. That That's where the sustainability has a benefit for the athlete too because it makes the shoe lighter uh, and reduces the waste. Yes. There was uh, targeting, and I don't know when this targeting goal started, but targeting 10% reduction of average environmental footprint of shoes by 2020, we're a couple of years away. And then uh, by also by fiscal year 2020, aiming to have the zero waste, which you just mentioned, mm-hmm. from contracted footwear manufacturers sent to landfills. Mm-hmm. So those are um, really great goals and probably just touches the surface of what goes on yeah. uh, in Beaverton. Yeah, you know, first of all, there was a Nike before computers and yep. a Nike before cell phones mm-hmm. and a Nike before the internet, right? That's, that's, that's crazy. one kind of company. Right. Now the access to information is so great that the learning curve is just exponential, mm-hmm. and it just escalates. And so uh, 
we are learning so fast how to do things better because of strategic partnerships around the world with suppliers, material suppliers, manufacturers. Everybody's on board with this because yeah. it affects everybody's affected, and it's good business, by the way. Yeah. And so it makes yeah. a whole lot. If guys want to, if guys want to work with Nike, they got to line up and follow our rules. And we're, we're we're all about what you just said, and because it's again, it's the right thing to do. It comes from the heart, right? About 25 years ago, we had a, a meeting with, uh, I wish I could remember his name right now. <laughs> uh, and we made a commitment, a verbal commitment, that our goal will be someday to have 100% recyclable product. And that's before we even knew how to do that. Mm-hmm. But we knew we, were, we would figure it out over time. So we put a stake in the sand way back then. We had a big meeting with our employees. Uh, Tom Clark was the president and Charlie Denson. Mark Parker, all the new level level of guys, and they were all part of this commitment to be, how can we stay uh, on the edge, innovate everything, change everything, learn everything, and then bring people in that, that love what we're doing here, and each young generation comes in, the, the, the my generation, no, no cell phone, the new generation, <laughs> all cell phone all the time, you know what I mean? And, and keeping up, but it's the fact that you have access to information, you can figure stuff out now, you know, you used to go from an idea to a shoe would take you three months. Now you can go from an idea to a computer and have a, a 3D printout in a five minutes. Right, So right. it's like, who would have thought, right? So things are moving that fast, and I think that uh, we know that doing the right thing is, is all of the things you said, and it's the future is even going to be better, you know, 100%. Uh, you know, we'll make a soccer jersey like the ones that the guys are wearing in World Cup made out of, what, 28 recycled pop bottles. Mm-hmm. And then these new machines where they're learning how to weave new kinds of weaving and how to take different materials and do things to them and create new materials. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought, right? right? So it's between the access to information, the evolution of science, the understanding of how things work, uh, better distribution systems, better uh, you know, uh, warehousing systems, better sales systems, better uh, in the supply chain. The word supply chain did not exist in the 70s. It wasn't a word. Now it's, you can't go to work without supply chain. I mean, yeah. From start to finish, my God. You think about this. Nike will make over a billion somethings or other next year. So how do you do that and do it with what we're talking about? Sustainable, environmentally sensitive, smart, you know, uh, always evolving, always learning, always trying, taking risk, always inventing, innovating, 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 innovating. 25 years ago when you were having that discussion, when the management was having that discussion, to now, I would imagine that the manufacturers you're working with and such were probably not as on board as Nike was. And then slowly as the world changed and the world realized the importance of having sustainable business Mm -hmm. environmentally, uh, speaking, you're, you're absolutely coming. correct. Yeah, because it was this is the way we do we do it, and then we come into town and go. Well, we would like to do this, but no, no, this is the way we do it. But interesting enough, the enlightened owners of factories who could see the change taking place in manufacturing of products like ours, the enlightened ones would go. They're looking around and they're sort of noticing if we don't get on board, we will lose this business. Mm-hmm. And so we've had guys that have been strategic partners for 25 and 30 and 35 years, a handful of them who figured out a long time ago the change. So factories went from the perception of you know, sweatshops, we had all that negative publicity in the 90s, to now 
state-of-the-art facilities in those countries that are far beyond what they were 30 years ago because that's what the world demands. If you're going to make product, you got to make it in a safe, fair, supportive environment mm -hmm. that thinks about humans as participants in the process, not just labor. Right. It's, it's amazing what's happened from, from being blamed for uh, being, uh, as one group called us, the great Satan of Asia to the model of what it should look like today. And it mm -hmm. took a long time, but we made a commitment a long time ago uh, that, that the future demands, demands uh, partners who, and all of us buy into what we're doing here. Well, and Nike has, is a big enough company, obviously, to demand that these changes yes. take place because you have, yes. you have the power to do yeah. that. And then we didn't at one time. Right, See, right. So we earned it. Mm -hmm. and, and again, the guys that stuck with us grew up with us. And so between this, between all of us learning, the good ones, are, we go, yeah, we, we're changing, we're doing this, we're, we're gonna add this, this, we're gonna stop doing that, we're gonna build brand new factories, we're gonna change the air conditioning, change the lighting, feed them better food, add healthcare, things that didn't exist 25 right. years ago are part of the deal. I wanna go back to the beginning, mm -hmm. Bill Bowerman, Phil Knight, what are the key elements that they brought to Nike that you have seen are pillars, you know, almost 50 years sure. later? Uh, number one, that Bowerman um, was a great teacher. Yeah. And Bowerman uh, taught uh, and understood the power of teams. And he made a great comment, you know, if, if, you, uh, if you believe in the mission, whatever it is, sport team, business team, radio company, whatever it is, if you believe in the mission and, and everybody is working for, towards that goal, everybody has each other's backs, and there's a sense of esprit de corps and, 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 and then you're not afraid to go out and try. He says, there's almost no way you can fail. So that understanding the power of teams where people are committed so that when you come to work, it's not just a job and you're getting a paycheck is you're going to do something that you want to do. You're working with people you love and you're going to serve humanity by the things you do. If you get that kind of chemistry, you go. So boom, Knight's understanding of the relationship between the coach and the athlete. So, uh, the understanding that we, we talk about listening to the voice of the athlete. Mm -hmm. Well, that just means we're good at what we do, but we have to constantly listen because each generation is different and the, the needs are different. The athletes train differently. They eat differently. I mean, NFL football players now are on a 24-7 schedule. They, they monitor their sleep, every calorie they take, every exercise they do, how much downtime, everything. I they mean, weren't doing yoga 20 years oh, ago. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, their body fat content, I mean, everything is scrutinized scientifically. As a result, bigger, stronger, faster. I mean, amazing. And Dominican Suze is 300-pound yes. monster of a guy, and he works out at Nike, and we watch him do his workouts, and you look at the commitment, and he it's because he knows yeah. to play at that level, then the discipline to sleep, eat right. They're, they're not drinking and eating. He's and, had a long career. Oh, yeah. And, and to do that, to survive, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so, so Bowerman was all about teams, all about teaching guys about how to win and how to deal with losing. His, his, great, his great comment was, was a couple of things he said was, uh, if, if you've done your best, you've won your prize because not everybody's going to win. Right. If you've done the best you can, so teaching people, be the best you can be and take that with you anywhere. Be the best parent, be the best worker, be the best 
father, husband, wife, whatever, just to understand that the lessons from sport you can use in life. So Knight and Bowerman was good at that. Knight absorbed that. Knight knew that we knew had to understand athletes, and when you do that by interacting with them, by listening to them, by talking to them, by experimenting with them, by making them partners with you, it's not just one way or the other. It's go back and forth, back and forth. And then Knight's unique understanding of the power of sport mm-hmm. is by far the greatest motivator globally than anything, from my perspective, more than anything. Just watch World Cup when they have the escalation <laughs> of no goal to goal. I mean, right. losing, winning. It's like, oh my God. So, but Knight understood the power of sport, understood the athlete. Barman understood, you know, the power of teams and, and how to compete and teaching. So, as if you read the book Shoe Dog, and you know that the, the, the big word that pops up is trust, because Knight had to trust his people, like Barman had to trust his athletes to do their best, and that, that, um, that we had to all work together to get a team victory. You can't yeah. do it by yourself. So I think that uh, you know Knight's individual uh, learnings from Barman as an athlete, he was a good athlete, but not the best athlete. But he's a good athlete, and he absorbed the lessons, and he watched how Barman taught. Uh, and Bar- even t- today, one of the great quotes we use, Barman says, uh, he used to call himself, I'm the professor of the competitive response. <laughs> and that meant he was teaching kids 18, 19, 20-year-olds to, with all the distractions in your life as a college kid, how do you get them to be prepared to run on race day? Mm-hmm. You have to clear the air. Right. And you got to get singularly focused. He was great at that. Four NC2A championship teams, more guys run ran under four minutes in the mile than any other school in this country. So he was great because he was a great teacher. So teacher, teams, sport, athletes, all of that juice is what created the company. Mm-hmm. Not we're going to make shoes and go right. sell shoes. We're going to we're going to be a part of the sport, yeah. and we're going to make stuff that help a- athletes train and compete. Well, again, that coach athlete background formed the base for the company yeah. because they saw the need, and that mindset stayed with them uh, throughout that time. Yes, I know we're going back and forth and all over the map, but the story, of course, of the swoosh is also a great story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Carolyn Davidson. Carolyn Davidson. Does, Phil Knight asked her to design it. She's a graphic design student. Yeah. He asked her to design She designs five uh, different uh, logos, and his idea was he wanted a, a shoe stripe to show motion, and he picks the fifth one that he likes. 35 bucks for her work. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, at the time, it was right. the right price. Right, I mean, absolutely. Carolyn said uh, her, she, what I heard it was, and I've met Carolyn and heard the story. She said, yeah, I mean, I was a graphic arts student, exactly. sophomore or something, and it was her first job, by the way. <laughs> and she said, I'll have to charge you my rate. And he said, well, how much? $2 an hour. It was her, her <laughs> fee. So she did do that, and then yeah. they had all, some serious designs, and and the and the the genius of it is is that we had picked the name before we drew the swoosh. Mm. So then again, I said the word serendipity earlier. Serendipitousness, if that's a word, is that this the the mark she drew without knowing the the, the, the statue is it looked like the wing uh-huh. on the wing goddess of it. You saw it like they were made to go right, together. Right, right. And I guess like this is cosmic. You know? <laughs> 
And then, and then the other great story was that night. You know, he's so, such a, who he is. Who is he? Was, he, he the name and the who she says. Yeah, no, I don't like it that much, but I, I think it'll grow on me. <laughs> so what? for you know a name, a thirty-five dollar a name that dreamt by Jeff Johnson dreamt. Yeah, a swoosh for thirty-five dollars comes together, fits, and changes the industry. Yeah. No, that's great. All those little things, yeah. uh, the s- little stories behind the beginning of the company uh, are are neat to hear. And even those of us who have been around Portland for a while, yeah. we might know a little bit about it, but to get the whole story is kind of yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. 1990, I was here by then. Uh, that's when headquarters uh, were set up in Beaverton mm, yes. and the Nike town yeah. store opened up. That was a big deal. Yeah. And now stores in all over the world couple of dozen offices or a couple of dozen countries where offices are. Yeah. We, we do business now in about over 190 countries in the world. Yeah. We have world, we have headquarters in, in uh, world headquarters here, yeah. European headquarters uh, in South of Amsterdam and Hilversum, mm-hmm. South American headquarters in um, Brazil, I think. Maybe not. Now I can't remember. And then, uh, and, and then unique uh, locations in China, obviously. Mm-hmm. China, Japan, and then each country has a, their own office in each country. But but corporate offices is not that many. It's, it's the Europe, U.S., China, and South America. Mm-hmm. And South America. I don't. Now that I'm sitting here, I don't even know if I remember where we, if we have one. It might be in <laughs> Panama, for all I know. Oh wow. No, it's not. But no. it, I, I <laughs> it sounded <remember>. good. <laughs> I was looking at the website yeah. and uh, particularly where the job listings are. And innovation is the word that stands out. Regardless, mm-hmm. it seems like where in the company you want to be. Nike looks for innovators because without innovators, Nike wouldn't be here. That is the key thing. Totally. And yeah, Our mission statement is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Yeah. And then a little asterisk is if you have a body or an athlete, which is a quote that Bowerman actually made. Yeah. So that means there's potential for everybody. Absolutely. But innovation and inspiration, and that's what we, we did that from day one without articulating that's what we were doing, and mm-hmm. we do it now. And so it's, it serves the world that way. And it attracts a lot of innovators, regardless of whether they're designers, athletes. Do you have a lot of athletes coming in uh, who uh, former you know, major athletes. Yeah, yeah some. Uh, if they're major athletes, they tend to do different things. Right. But but the ones that have an interest, we get some, we get some, we have some NFL guys working out there. We have yeah. track guys working out there. People that are interested in the whole process, product, customer service, um, you know, R&D, design, mm-hmm. uh, b- both footwear and apparel. We have a whole apparel division working on exotic fabrics and mm-hmm. construction processes and and of course, footwear, footwear is out there like crazy. Yeah. We're doing stuff, and so yeah, we do. And, and and we have more people who've played sport that work at Nike than maybe the highest profile guys because their lives are a little bit different. A little bit different. Yeah. And then one other thing I want to touch on: started off very small, now a worldwide company. So many different growing pains. So many different lessons learned along the way. What are some of that you think that you've seen the biggest takeaways from stumbles uh, that, the, that have befalled the company and how Nike has sort of come back stronger sure. with the innovation. I think it's, uh, it's the ability to, to zoom out and adapt. Mm-hmm. And everybody, again, each generation grows up with, 
their mindset, how they see the world, the condition of the world at that time, and 10 years later, it's a different world. Mm -hmm. So the ability to adapt, the fact that we've been successful, I look back on our, our, our growth curve and it's a 45 degree angle growth curve. And that means uh, the, the luck of all that success is you keep hiring the, the new next generation. So you stay with new eyes, yeah. freshness, and that those people help you adapt to, to of the today's. Can you imagine today the kids that we call the millennials? It's another kind of of human being that's been raised in the, in the digital world. Mm -hmm. So to, we need that because the future is digital more than people realize. You know, look at Amazon and Alibaba in China. I mean, these incredible businesses based on. Everything's de being done on the cell phone. And right. So I think that growth has allowed us to stay young. Our average age is still 35 out there. And my generation is 0.0001% of And <laughs> <laughs> that's you. Yeah. <laughs> of the company. <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're a youthful company. We, we deal with a youthful crowd, uh, basically. But e even though fitness is expanded now to, to everybody, I mean, we, we have great stories of, uh, you know, 100-year-old people who were, couldn't do anything and went on a, an exercise program, and then they were able to go back to do things they couldn't do when they were, the last time they did that, they were 80. So there's, yeah. there's cer certain, there's super learning about fitness and health and so on. But the fact that we've been successful, I'd say every decade there's sort of an adjustment that you make. Because, it's mm -hmm. it's, again, it's a generational. Your 18-year-old is now 28. Your 30-year-old is now 40. So you have to adapt to the changes of the world. And we've been really good at that. Because we, if we didn't, then we'd be left behind. Absolutely. And then innovation is on not just footwear or apparel. It's everything. The brand-new offices now, they cater to the digital kid you don't have an office anymore you don't have cubes you have workspaces you have fr free open spaces we have you know we have food services out there we have gyms out there so we cater to the to the fact that the, it, the work the way people work is different when I moved yeah. into the campus in 1990 I had an office and there were offices and cubes and the new building there's very few offices no cubes and then and then it's because it's a different environment and if you don't adapt again you get left behind in a heartbeat absolutely that's how you attract yes. the younger generation absolutely. is you, is is uh knowing what their needs are you know, to some extent you yes. still have work to do yes it keeps you young as well yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I, uh, uh i'm lucky because i deal with uh youth every day yeah and uh, uh I, I'm aware of the music, the fashions, the food. I know where all the hot spots are in town. <laughs> <laughs> I know where not to go. <laughs> but I think uh, uh, we, we're highly interactive. But the thing that I think is most important for listeners to understand is that our success has been because we have had good people yeah. and we've been made great product, great services, and we've adapted and we've been courageous and we've made the hard decisions when we've had to and we've made the changes that we've had to make. And uh, I remember we had a meeting one time, and, and uh, we, we were, it, before supply chain was a word and a process, we put up our whole, how we design shoes from start to finish, and it was a, a piece of butcher paper that was 40 feet long, and they had graphed every single step of the way. And they looked at it, and then the, right about a third of the way through, there was a box, and the, and the process went into the box, and because somebody had to sign off, and then it would go out. Well, it, it came back to that box four times. 
Mm. And we asked somebody, and the answer was, that. well, that's the way we've always done it. So we blew that up. Mm-hmm. But it was that kind of thing. Well, we're not doing that anymore because right. that doesn't work anymore. So courage to change. And it's hard. I mean, it's like training. I mean, the new ways to train. You've got to stop this, do that. And we're always every 90 days or more, stop this, start that. What are we doing here? How's everybody feeling? Are we on the right track? We're not going to do that anymore. You know, speak up. Everybody has an opinion. Yeah. And you're highly interactive. Get your ego out of the way. Mm-hmm. The big egos will kill you because the, the people think, well, I'm the one that knows. No, you're not. There's always someone smarter than you, richer right. than you, better looking than you. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's, uh. so, it's, uh, it's just uh, um, being, being human and being, being a part of a true team that likes, likes what we're doing. And, again, you, you care. You have, to have, you have to be emotionally involved. You have to care about what you're doing. If you care about it, you'll do a good job. And you'll care about your teammates. And that's a theme that has been, that's another theme that's been present through many of these conversations, particularly with uh, folks who are heads of companies that have been around for a long time. You have to be nimble. One more thing before we go, Nelson. May 27th, 1997, Nelson Ferris Day. (laughs) What was that about? I don't know. (laughs) I think... I think that was uh, an event in Europe. Was it? Yes. Okay. And I think... Uh, it flashed on the screen of the video that I watched uh, oh, where you were there was, a sho- was there a wooden shoe? Yes, a wooden yes. shoe. Okay. That's what it was. It was... Uh, they, uh, <laughs> I went over to our European headquarters and the, and the, uh, a nice guy over there said they were going to have a Nelson Ferris Day because, again, I'm the oldest employee in the company, right? So they celebrated. <laughs> they gave me my day and gave me a, a custom-made pair of... Uh, of Dutch uh, wooden shoes, and we had a we had a big celebration. That's what that was. That nice, and, nice. I, and I thank them very much for mm-hmm. that. Well, Nelson, uh, Nike's chief storyteller, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me on K I N K one hundred one point nine. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Nelson Ferris. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland Fifty podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating King's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950.